Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Sydney IDs public lecture series at the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney IDs. I'm extremely pleased to welcome Loretta Napoliana to the University of Sydney and the Sydney IDs series. She's just come from a very successful series of events at Melbourne's Writers' Festival, and I'd like to thank the festival for working with Sydney IDs to make Loretta available for a lecture in Sydney after her Melbourne commitments. The lecture is also a co-presentation with the Italian Institute of Culture and the Italian Trade Commission in Sydney. So I'd like to thank them both for their support and welcome their members to the lecture tonight. The format for the lecture is 45-minute lecture by Loretta followed by a 30-minute question and answer session. We have at the bottom of the aisles some microphones, so we'll ask you to come and use those microphones for your questions. We are recording the lecture for podcast and film on the university website, so it's important that um, the questions are recorded as well. After the lecture, Loretta will be signing copies of her book in the Glee Books foyer upstairs, back in the, um, up, sorry, upstairs from where you came. But for now, I'm very pleased to welcome the Vice-Chancellor and Principal of the University of Sydney, Dr. Michael Spence to the lectern. Dr. Spence will introduce our speaker tonight. Thank you. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of this land, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and pay respect to elders past and present. Well, it is a tremendous privilege to welcome you here to the university this evening. Um, the university is an unbelievable treasure trove of opportunities to learn about almost anything and I would encourage you to take advantage of the events that are outlined in the brochure on your, on your seat. When we asked alumni and friends of the university what they thought was exciting about Sydney as a place, they said that it's a place that takes academic ideas very seriously but is also deeply engaged with the community and a place that's not frightened to be edgy, a place that is not frightened to talk about controversial ideas as much as the much more well-accepted ones. And so it is my very great pleasure to introduce this evening someone whose academic credentials cannot in any way be doubted, but someone who has had tremendous courage in following ideas through even when those ideas have been unpopular in some quarters. It's my great pleasure to introduce um, Dr. Napoleoni. She's an Italian-born, UK-based economist and author of the best-selling Rouge Economics. And tonight, of course, she'll discuss her latest research, which is into the connections between the response to 9-11, known as the War of Terror, and the credit crunch. And she discusses those in her most recent book, Terrorism and the Economy, How the War on Terror is Bankrupting the World. Napoleoni is the author of several fiction books and other works of non-fiction, including Terror Incorporated and Insurgent Iraq. Her work has been translated into 18 languages, including Chinese and Arabic. She's an expert of the, on the financing of terrorism and advises governments and international organizations on counterterrorism. As chairman of the counter, Countering Terrorism Financing Group for the um, Club de Madrid, Napoleoni um, brought heads of states together to create a new strategy for combating the financing of terror networks. She was a Fulbright Scholar at Johns Hopkins University's Paul H. Nitzer School of Advanced International Studies in Washington, D.C., and a Rotary Scholar at the London School of Economics. 
She has a PhD in economics and a master's of philosophy in international relations and one in terrorism. She's a regular guest lecturer on the shadow economy on In the Shadows, uncovering the new economy of terror and crime at Cambridge University's Judge Business School. Well, it is quite an extraordinary list of credentials, and I'm sure you'll agree meets that Sydney profile of both academic quality, engagement with real world issues, and a willingness to take a stand to look through the obvious into the difficult heart of many problems. So Dr. Napoleoni, welcome to the university. It is a privilege to have you here. Well, thank you very much for being here today. I must apologize, I have very little voice. The weather in Australia has not been very warm. Say, it's amazing that I'll be going home to England to the warm weather. So <clears throat> next time I'll come in the summer. So um, I must thank Sydney Ideas for inviting me today and also the Italian Institute of Culture and the Italian Trade Commission for supporting this initiative. And I hope you will enjoy this lecture, even if I will be telling you some sad stories. So terror and the economy... <clears throat> is the title. These are two topics which have been filling the front pages of our newspapers in the last 10 years. But also these two topics have changed my life. Um, and I thought that perhaps to start this lecture I will tell you my personal story, how an economist actually became an expert in terrorist financing. I thought by telling you this story, you can see how close terrorism can be to your life without even realizing that it is there. So my story starts about 16 years ago. I received a phone call from a friend who had been looking after the rights of political prisoners in Italy. And um, he said, I have a very interesting proposal for you. Uh, the Red Brigades would like to talk to you because they would like you to interview them in order to tell their story. Now, I don't know if many of you remember who the Red Brigades were, but that was a Marxist armed organization which was very active in Italy from the 60s to the 80s. And as a part of their strategy, they never spoke with anybody, including their lawyers. They sat through the trials without saying one single word because they did not recognize the authority of the state. So the red brigades were very much a mystery. And the idea that they wanted to talk to me was quite intriguing. So I asked my friend, but why the red brigades want to talk to me? I'm an economist. I'm a banker. I've been working in the city of London for many years. And they said, well, actually, the idea came from the female members of the red brigades, in particular from one. Um, one of the leaders of the red brigades, in fact, was my childhood friend. And I discovered it the day after she was arrested. I actually opened the newspaper, and here she was, a picture, with the stories of her involvement with armed organizations. So although I had been um, in touch with my friend after she had been arrested, we have never discussed politics because she was one of the really hardcore, unrepentant 
uh, members of the Red Brigades, they didn't discuss their commitment to the armed struggle, not even with family and members uh, and friends. Uh, so um, the idea that she wanted to talk to me about our story and that you know, the, all the Red Brigades wanted to talk to me was... I must say, it was very intriguing. But yet, at that time, it was a very difficult decision because i just finished a management buyout of the company I was working, so I was fairly busy professionally, but also I had just had the baby. And going to interview the brigades meant to go back home to Italy and spend two years, maybe even three years, going from one security prison to another, talking to them. Uh, so it was a difficult decision. But in the end, I decided to do it, and I'll tell you why, for two reasons. One was what had turned my childhood friend into a terrorist, and the second one was why she never tried to recruit me. So, I mean, at that time, the recruitment was done primarily among family and friends, so I was curious, and I realized that day I received a phone call. I realized that that question had been in the back of my mind for all those years. I never actually confronted that, but it was there. So I packed my bags, and I went. And it was very interesting because I discovered immediately why she had become a terrorist, because she believed that Italy was a block democracy, and therefore the only way to unblock that situation, which she's same um, type of government uh, with the same party ruling for 35 years was through the armed struggle. But I also discovered why she never recruited me, because she actually did put my name uh, through the Central Committee of the Red Brigades, and I was rejected. I was rejected because I was too opinionated and too single-minded. I was not going to be a good terrorist. So that was uh, very interesting because uh, it made me think about um, who are these guys? I mean, I, you know, I didn't know anything about them, of course. But my idea was a bit uh, of, um, I think it w was a bit uh, influenced by those years in which terrorism was so uh, present in our daily life in Italy. So my idea was that these guys were actually discussing politics day in and day out, that they were you know, thinking about new strategies. Um, in reality, it was not like that at all. Um, the Central Committee, so a very, very small group of people, decided the political line of the, the organization. And all the rest of the people, so you know, the, the bulk of the organization, all they did day in and day out was search for money because they were always short of money. Um, terrorism is a very expensive business. Uh, I mean, in the 1970s, uh, the Red Brigades had a turnover about, of about $7 million. Uh, now, it's a lot of money for an underground organization to raise. Uh, this is about $100 million today. So they were obsessed with money. And this is also why uh, when I was interviewing them and I was asking questions related to politics and ideology, they were extremely reluctant to talk about that. But as soon as I asked them question about, so how did you manage to fund that um, terrorist attack, they were very forthcoming. And they wanted to, to a certain extent, they wanted to show off with me because, you know, I was the economist coming from the city, so they wanted to show to me that they actually you know, knew how to raise money. 
uh, one of the most funny stories actually was uh, from a psychiatrist. He was a part-timer from the brigades, um, and he had a beautiful sailing boat, and he was a keen sailor. So every summer, he would take his sailing boat, sailing all the way to Lebanon, where he would pick up weapons from the PLO and bring them to Sardinia. And then in Sardinia, other armed organizations from Europe would come in order to pick up you know, the amount of weapons for themselves. And for that service, the Red Brigades were paid a fee. And he was so proud of that because he was telling me, can you imagine, it was great. You know, I was selling, I was having the time of my life, and at the same time, I was helping the Red Brigades. So this is the kind of people that uh, terrorists are. But it was only when I interviewed um, Mario Moretti. Mario Moretti was the leader of the Red Brigades, the, the guy who actually kidnapped Aldo Moro, the former prime minister of Italy, and also the guy that executed him. Um, it was when I, I was uh, talking to him that all of a sudden I realized that there was something more to terrorism than ideology. Because this guy was talking to me as a banker. I mean, the way he was addressing me, the way he was explaining his strategy, the way he was explaining what the Red Brigades really wanted to achieve was so similar to the way a banker or an economist would address the board of directors that all of a sudden I thought, I got to investigate this. I got to investigate the economics of terrorism. So this is when I started my research and I funded by myself until 9-11 because, of course, nobody wanted even to talk to me. Everybody thought that I was crazy. Everybody thought there is no economics or terrorism. But then, of course, after 9-11, my phone never stopped ringing for a week because everybody wanted the research. Anyway, so what did I discover? Well, I discovered that um, since the end of World War II, um, the economics of terrorism has undergone three major stages. And the first one is the privatization. The first one is, sorry, the state sponsor of terrorism. The second one is the privatization of terrorism. And the third one is the globalization of terrorism. Now, state sponsor of terrorism, you all remember, there was a feature of the Cold War. This is when the two superpowers were fighting a war by proxy along the periphery of the sphere of influence by fully funding armed organization. A mix of legal and illegal activities was used to fund this organization. Um, I think the best example is the contrast in Nicaragua. So we see that um, they were presented by the Reagan administration as freedom fighters, so therefore they were legally funded by the U.S. Congress. Uh, but at the same time, uh, this was insufficient uh, to support uh, their fight, so therefore they were also funded by covert operation run by the Reagan administration. The most important one, of course, is uh, the Iran-Contra affairs. Now we see that towards the end of the 70s, early 80s, certain groups managed to privatize the business of terrorism, which means they managed to gain independence from their sponsor by finding their own way to fund themselves. And again, we find a mix of legal and illegal activities. Now the most successful privatization, of course, is the one of the PLO. Uh, but also the IRA and also ETA 
underwent this kind of process. And I'll give you um, an example of how they were funding themselves. Arafat got a cut of every single um, export or smuggling, I would say, of Ashish from the Bega Valley. This is a form of illegal, of course, funding. Uh, well, you know, the IRA in Northern Ireland control all the private transportation service. So every time somebody got into a cab in Belfast, for example, without knowing, was actually funding the IRA. Now, the last uh, uh, transition took place in the 1990s, and it was thanks to the deregulation. As economic and financial barriers came down, armed organizations were able to consolidate their commercial relationship, um, but also they were able to link up with a criminal organization, and in particular, they were able to use that network of illegal uh, institutions uh, through which criminal organizations actually money launder their money, and through which also criminal organizations move money from one place to another. So we see that um, we um, have a new type of a terrorist organization, and this is a transnational terrorist organization, Al-Qaeda being the best possible example. This is an organization that can raise money in more than one country, but also it's an organization that can carry out an attack in more than one country. I think 9-11 is the best example. Funded uh, uh, from the Gulf, primarily, um, uh, the money were controlled in Afghanistan, where, of course, Al-Qaeda was based. But the attack took place in the United States, and the money migrated uh, from you know, the Gulf to Afghanistan, and then from Afghanistan to the United States. Now, I actually calculated how big was this kind of economy. Um, and I also calculated how big was this economy, so the new economy of terrorism, uh, together with the criminal economy and the illegal economy. Because we see that through the 90s, these three aspects of the shadow economy, they become more and more integrated to the point that they create one international economic system. So before 9-11, the size of this economy was $1.5 trillion. Uh, this is about 5% of the world economy or more than the GDP of the United Kingdom. So we're talking about you know, something quite big, quite substantial. Um, now, the components, uh, $500 billion uh, um, was what is commonly known as capital flights. These are money that move from countries to countries illegally undetected and unrecorded. Um, there's a lot of tax evasion in that, but also briberies, for example. Another 500 billion is what is commonly known as the gross criminal product. Um, these are money produced by criminal organizations across the world. And then the final 500 billion is what I um, define as the new economy of terror, um, of which uh, one-third is produced by legitimate businesses. Legitimate businesses is not only charitable donation, but also the sponsorship. Because, you know, when a, a Saudi businessman decides to send money, for example, to al-Qaeda um, in Afghanistan in order to help Osama bin Laden, he's not sending dirty money, he's sending clean money. Now, those money will be clean until they're used 
for a terrorist attack. So you see how difficult it is actually to track this money. Because in reality, it's only after the attack has taken place that you technically can define them as dirty money. Now, what is interesting is that uh, until 9-11, the bulk of this $1.5 trillion was in U.S. dollars, and it was money laundered primarily in the United States. Now, you can imagine that this was a, a massive injection of cash into the U.S. economy. And in fact, when I went to look at the figures of the U.S. money supply, the U.S. money supply is the amount of cash that is produced um, every year, so that it's produced physically by the Federal Reserve in order to meet the growth of the economy. We're talking about M1, so it's only cash. So when I went to look at what's happened to all this cash every year, I discovered that from the late 1960s until 2001, an increasingly number, uh, amount of this cash was taken out every year from the United States illegally. We're talking about money shipped in containers or, you know, taken out in suitcases. Now, um, in 2001, one-third of the $500 billion of the U.S. money supply M1 that year actually left the country in this way. And the reason why I left the country in this way is because that cash went to fund the growth of the illegal criminal and terror economy. Now, I also discovered that there was um, a vast literature of economists from the Federal Reserve, in particular the Federal Reserve of St. Louis, um, discussing this phenomenon and worrying about this phenomenon. And of course, you know, nobody paid any attention to that. And when I went to uh, look at why nobody's paying attention to that, I mean, this is a serious problem. Of course, I discovered why. Um, the United States as the reserve currency of the world, that's the U.S. dollar, and because of that, the U.S. can borrow against the total stock of dollars in circulation in the world. Now, no other country can do that. Now, Australia, for example, can only borrow against the stock of Australian dollars in circulation inside the borders of Australia. Whatever is outside cannot be, calculated, cannot be accounted for you know, the relationship between the amount of money in circulation and the debt. Now, this privilege that the United States has is called senior age. So the reason why nobody was worrying about that is because, of course, the United States had been borrowing against the growing stock of dollars that were used by the criminal terror and illegal economy from the late 60s until, of course, 2011, 2001. So uh, this is the picture, which is quite, uh, I think it is quite shocking, I must say. Um, then comes 9-11, and things change. But the interdependency between terror and economy doesn't go away. It simply changes its nature. So what's happened? Um, basically, the United States, in October 2001, they um, produced 
the Patriot Act. This was a unilateral legislation that the United States uh, put together without consulting their allies or anybody else. Um, it took people by surprise. Of course, I'm talking about the financial sector section of the Patriot Act. Um, now, what does this uh, financial section um, talks about? Well, basically, it is an anti-money laundering legislation that blocks the entry of dirty money and, of course, also of terror money into the United States. So U.S. bank and U.S. registered foreign banks are prohibited from doing any business with offshore facilities outside the United States. So we're talking about all the Caribbean offshore facilities. But also, the monetary authority of the United States have the right to monitor any dollar transaction taking place anywhere in the world. So uh, what was the reaction to the Patriot Act? Well, actually, the reaction of the Patriot Act was uh, highly negative for the U.S. dollar and for the U.S. economy. Okay, for a start, we see that international banking community does not like the Patriot Act because nobody wants the U.S. Monetary Authority to monitor uh, its relationship, the bank relationship with its clientele. So we see that uh, from October 2001 onwards, uh, um, international banks start advising their clients to get out of the dollar investment and to start investing in euros. Now, the euro at that time was the, the newly born European currency. And he offered great potentials because, of course, it was the currency that was used in a very large market. I mean, you know, the European Union. So we see a progressive uh, movement from the dollar area to the euro. Uh, we also see a progressive drop in the value of the dollar exchange rate vis-a-vis -vis the euro, which starts at the end of October 2001. Now, this is well before the U.S. actually had a budget deficit. On the opposite, the U.S. in October 2001 was still running a very small surplus that uh, the Clinton administration had left to the Bush administration. But at the same time, we also see a massive repatriation of funds from Muslim investors. Now, Muslim investors are perceiving the Patriot Act as a legislation which is actually against them. Uh, they will give the monetary authorities the opportunities to um, monitor them, but also to freeze their accounts. So they're scared. So we see in the first six months after 9-11, a repatriation of about $1 trillion. So this money went uh, mostly back to the Middle East, but part of it also went to Europe. And then finally, we see that the illegal economy, the criminal economy, and the terror economy simply shifted their activities from the United States to Europe. See, the Patriot Act was introduced only in the United States. Uh, the Europeans did not introduce a similar legislation. On the contrary, they maintain um, many legislation. They also maintain their offshore facilities in position in, in Europe. So basically what's happened was that, that the money laundering activities which had taken place in the United States until 9-11 simply you know, migrated to Europe. But this phenomenon also alter dramatically the flows of the physical 
um, goods, they are normally smuggled from you know, the United States, from Latin America to the rest of the world. And in particular, we're talking about the cocaine trade. Now, what's happened was that as soon as you know, the money laundering started to take off in Europe, so we're talking about the beginning of 2002, um, an Italian crime organization, the Drangheda, which is the Calabrian organized crime, uh, was in an ideal position to run this business uh, because you had a network uh, in Europe that was you know, quite widespread. Um, at the same time, um, through the help of uh, a member of a terrorist organization in Colombia of Italian origin, Salvatore Mancuso, who later on became the leader of the AUC. The AUC was the paramilitary organization in Colombia. They managed to broker a deal, a sort of joint venture with the narco-traffickers from Colombia. Uh, basically what they said, uh, they said this, we offer you a full service. You bring the cocaine to us. We sell it, distribute it in Europe, and we money launder everything for you, and then we repatriate it. And all of this for a 35% cut. I mean, it was a fantastic deal. So we see, yeah, it was. I mean, money laundering is very expensive. I mean, in, in 2002, 2003, because of the Patriot Act, money laundering went up, the cost went up to 50, sometimes even 75% in the U.S. So 35% was nothing. So we see that from 2002 onwards, um, that cocaine route, the classic cocaine route uh, to Europe, which went from Latin America to the United States and from the United States to Europe uh, actually changed. And a new route was opened that went from uh, um, Latin America, in particular from Colombia via Venezuela to West Africa. So Guinea-Bissau, for example, and then from West Africa all the way up, you know, to Europe. Um, and this new route opened up new opportunities also for terrorist organizations to get involved in this business. In particular, we're talking about uh, Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb. Now, Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb is a, is a group that was formed uh, after the beginning of the war in Iraq from uh, a group of former Mujahideen um, who were based in Algeria. Um, but then, you know, when he tapped into this new business, so we're talking about the smuggling on cocaine, he got enough money to expand. And today is very active in Mali, is active in Mauritania, is active also in Morocco. So we see that the joint venture between the Ndrangheta and the narco-trafficker from Colombia also opened up a new um, joint venture uh, through this new route with other uh, organizations, which are, of course, you know, terrorist organizations. So it's very interesting to see how, in reality, the, the change that took place uh, financially, so in money laundering, um, had an impact on the physical movement of cocaine. Now, um, the, the other interesting story, of course, is, which you know, brings us to the present, is the relationship between the funding of the war on terror and the current crisis. Um, and I think this is the most... Uh, um, 
shocking aspect of this interdependency between you know, terrorism and, and, and the economy. Now, um, we know today that the true aim of the war on terror went well beyond capturing bin Laden. In reality, what the Bush administration wanted to do, it wanted to relaunch the hegemonic position of the United States in key areas of the world, and in particular, of course, we're talking about the Middle East. Now, this was um, a sort of manifesto uh, that was produced by a uh, neocon think tank in 2000, right after Bush uh, got to the White House. Um, and the document is called uh, A Project for the New American Century. Um, in that document, we find uh, the essence of the original idea, which was developed by Dick Cheney in 1993, uh, when he was under Secretary of State of Bush father. And that idea was that in this new world, a globalized world, so you know, after the Cold War, the United States had to relaunch its position as the sole hegemonic power. And the strategy to follow uh, was, of course, to undermine, for example, the authority of the United Nations and in peacekeeping, so promote the role of the United States as the policeman of the world, but also to bring about a regime change in Iraq. Why was Iraq so important? Uh, it's not only because of oil. Um, it's actually the geopolitical position of Iraq, which was what um, appealed very much to, to Washington. Um, Iraq has a very large border with Iran, which is number one enemy of the United States. Uh, it's also um, a country that if there is a friendly regime to the United States, uh, can balance uh, the power of Saudi Arabia. Uh, the relationship with Saudi Arabia has always been rocky, uh, ambiguous. Uh, so the idea to get rid of Saddam Hussein and put there a government was very friendly to Washington was, you know, really very, very appealing. So the actual aim of the war on terror was the regime change in Iraq. And then, of course, if it worked, you know, uh, all the other um, agenda that was in the project for the new American centuries. Of course, this is a very expensive um, enterprise. I mean, it's not something that can be done with the $50 million that was originally budgeted by Donald Rumsfeld. Um, he needed uh, some you know, good funding. And of course, this is the Bush administration, which will never raise taxes. So yeah, Americans will never pay for this. Or let's go and get somebody else to pay for it. So let's go on the international capital market and sell the U.S. debt, so sell government bonds. But the international capital market is not an easy market. I mean, you've got to be competitive to sell your government bonds because everybody is selling government bonds. You know, we're talking about 2002. Um, so the idea is to make the government bonds of the United States very competitive. And the only way to make a government bonds competitive is to cutting interest rate. And this is exactly what's happened. Interest rate goes from 6% on the eve of 9-11 to 1.2% at the beginning of summer 2003. And this is when the U.S. thought they had won the war in Iraq. 
Now, that's a very, very fast and very steep fall of interest rate. Um, and this is also takes place in a moment in history when the world economy is overeating. Now, overeating means the world economy is growing too fast. In fact, in the late 1990s, interest rates started to go up because of that, because the world economy was growing so fast that new bubbles, new financial bubbles were about to be started. So there was a fear of that. But what the Bush administration does is exactly the opposite. And you may wonder, you know, how is it possible that the Federal Reserve went along with that? I mean, didn't they know that the world economy was overeating? Absolutely, that's true. But, but if you look at the policy that the Federal Reserve had pursued through the 90s, uh, you will see that every single time that there was an economic crisis, uh, you know, the ruble crisis, uh, the crisis of the Asian markets, the dot-com crisis, uh, the response of the Federal Reserve was to cut interest rates. We cut interest rates, so we make credit much cheaper, and then, you know, we get over the crisis. In reality, we never got over the crisis. We simply postponed the crisis. We simply got rid of the symptoms, but not of the root causes of the crisis. And today, of course, we know that. So 9-11 had triggered a sort of mini-recession. You may remember, nobody was flying anymore. Airlines were going bust. Nobody was shopping. Everybody was completely terrified. I mean, it was such an incredibly shocking event for the collecting imagination of the entire world. So the Federal Reserve actually went along with the idea to cut interest rate because they thought we cut interest rate very quickly, so you know, we get rid of the recession, we get the economy moving again, and everything's going to be fine. Well, actually, no, it didn't happen. <laughs> see, we see that uh, the formation of the credit crunch, the genesis of the credit crunch actually takes place uh, in those months in which interest rate comes down so quickly. This is when the subprime bubbles actually starts. This is when banks aggressively went to sell uh, uh, credit and mortgages to people that could not pay them back. And this is also when the mortgage-backed securities became an international business, when the securitization of a bad debt became a fantastic business for the balance sheet of banks. Because interest rates were coming down so quickly that you know, it was crazy not to do it because people were making money. You know, finance was booming. Absolutely booming. So this is their relationship. And then, you know, you know the rest of the story, of course, which is um, comes, you know, the credit, uh, the credit crunch. And then all of a sudden we discover that we have lived uh, well beyond our means. And then we have to repay this debt. And, of course, we don't know how to repay this debt because we don't have money. Um, and then, you know, we slide into the recession. And eventually now we are in the double-deep recession because you know, we're not out Although, you know, a few months ago they told us that they were out. Unemployment is not um, falling. On the contrary, it's rising. Um, so we're trapped inside this, uh, I would say, really nightmare scenario of the economy uh, because we have funded a war uh, which had nothing to do 
with bringing Osama bin Laden to justice, but everything to do with the, the new vision of the world of the neocons, of people like Dick Cheney. So um, to, you know, to wrap up this uh, discussion, the terrorism did change my life. And um, um, there was very little I could do. I mean, the reason why I changed my life is because of my curiosity. Uh, and in retrospect, although for many years uh, I had to fund my research by myself, and, uh, and sometimes I thought, oh my gosh, you know, am I crazy? Everybody thinks I'm crazy. Uh, but, you know, it was good. It was good because he opened up my eyes and he made me see the world for what it is. And I'm very happy to share this with you. But the same thing can happen to you. Um, do not think um, about what they tell you. Think outside the box. Try to find the connection. Because terrorism is part of our life. Otherwise, you know, it wouldn't happen. Everything is part of our life. You know, the war on terror is part of our life. Even if it takes place in another continent, at the end of the day, we live in a globalized world where all very much integrated. It's not only crime, terrorism, and the legal economy that are integrated. It's also our lives. It's international politics, international economics. So we got to do something about that because otherwise, tomorrow we'll wake up and we'll be in the, a new Great Depression and without even knowing why this is happening. So my contribution to you is this. Try to find a connection beyond what you read in the newspaper and for sure beyond what politicians tell you because most of the time these are lies. Thank you. Well, Dr. Napoleone has very kindly agreed to take some questions. So I think there are some roving microphones if people would like to have any questions to ask. So it's very difficult to see here. Yes, yeah, very. Um, why don't I kick off with a question while the people with the microphones are roving? Um, I, I was another great um, uh, Italian scholar of. Um, organized crime, Federico Varese, mm -hmm. has um, looked at this whole question of globalization and internationalization. And he suggests a, a much more organic, transaction, cost-filled, difficult world. Um, when you talk about it, it seems like a whole complex, shadowy world out there with its own institutions. What's, what's the picture? How does it work? Um, what does it mean to talk about the international economy of of organized crime and terrorism. Yeah, um, yes, I'm familiar with that analysis. I think it is very much organic. Uh, of course, you know, I focus on the shadow side. Um, what um, I find particularly disconcerting and worrying is the contamination that this shadow economy is um, conducting with the legitimate economy. Um, we may not know, uh, but we may actually end up uh, uh, being part of this shadow economy. Uh, if you buy a product which has been produced by a slave labor uh, run by the trafficker, the human being traffickers, for example, it, without knowing, you're actually supporting that economy. Um, so I think the contamination. Um, another um, good example is um, 
um, people that today are in financial difficulties because of the economic crisis, because of the recession. Many small businesses, for example, we're talking about restaurants, uh, they, they can't survive. So they go to the bank, and of course the bank is not lending the money because you know, the, the banks now do not lend the money. Um, what do they do? So all of a sudden somebody appears uh, from an uh, organized uh, uh, crime organization and says, well, you know, we can lend you the money. Uh, this is the interest rate. So these are the loan sharks, basically. Um, this is a very good way through which organized crime penetrates legitimate businesses that then are used for money laundering. And eventually, as people can't repay the debt, uh, the organized crime organization takes over that business. So this is another interesting aspect. So uh, from the point of view of um, the contamination, for sure, the recession has given more opportunities for this contamination to expand. Where is the microphone? Oh, it's over there. I'm sorry. I thought someone was bringing the microphone to you. Sorry. Dr. Napoleone, if, if we look back over the last couple of millennia, you've made the point that about 5% of the global economy at the moment is based on illegal either terrorism or um, trade in drugs. Was that different 1,000 years ago? What proportion of the global economy has always been um, based on the slave trade, uh, is it better now? Is 5% actually an improvement on, on previous centuries? Um, well, um, for a start, today is actually <clears throat> more than 5% of the world economy because um, there's been, in the last decade, there's been an increase, which I calculated between 10 to 15% of that $1.5 trillion. So it's actually more. What is shocking is that today uh, the... Uh, shadow economy is actually much bigger than it was in the past, not because we live in a bigger world, but in terms of percentage. I'll give you an example. The, um, actually, the International Labour Organization did an interesting study about slave about slaves. Um, there are a massive amount of slaves around the world. And this is partly because there is so much movement. People migrate so much. And they easily um, they fell prey of the, the, the human traffickers. But also the cost of a slave today is one-tenth the cost of a slave during the times of the Roman Empire. So that gives you the idea of how bad the situation is today. If you think about that there is over 1 billion people in the world that live with less than $2 per day, imagine what is happening in Pakistan today, for example. You know, we have a massive displacement of people. We're talking about 20 million people. I mean, many of those people will try to get to the West or even to Australia, you know, if they can get in because it's not easy. <laughs> but... Uh, They'll try to go anywhere where they can make a living because they have nothing left. So uh, this is the, the problem. And, of course, it's impossible to patrol the world as it's impossible to patrol the Internet. Paradoxically, during the Cold War, the situation was much, much better. 
because we had the two superpowers and the two superpowers were controlling their sphere of influence. There was no piracy at that time. Ask yourself, why all of a sudden there are all these pirates? Because nobody is patrolling the oceans anymore. Before we had the two superpowers patrolling the ocean because you know, they were afraid that somebody was you know, going inside their own sphere of influence. Today there is nobody patrolling the ocean. So uh, the globalization has helped tremendously um, crime and the legal economy and, of course, terrorism. And we never globalized the world before. We only globalized a little part of it in the past. Uh, Robert Harris, I'm an alumni from the business school. <clears throat> I have two questions. My first question is, uh, at what point did you begin to fear for your own safety, or did you ever get to that point where you felt you were treading uh, too close? And my second question is, uh, how far does one have to um, <clears throat> utilize the Internet before you uh, can find credible sources that are uh, actually uh, revealing uh, what you found to be the truth in the end? Uh, um, I don't think Dick Cheney knows who I am, so I'm safe. <laughs> I don't think he reads my books. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm fairly safe. I'm not so important, so I'm, I'm okay. Um, plus, I'm a woman. Who would believe a woman that does this kind of things? <laughs> um, the Internet is a big problem because um, there is so much stuff there, and, of course, there's so much good stuff, and there's also so much... Bad stuff. I, I, I don't have the answer. I think the internet is excellent for the experts. I mean, I can go on the internet, and because I know the various organizations, I know the names of the people, so I can easily go through and, and find important information and also you know, discharge the, the, the information that are not good at all. But I think for people that are not experts on the field, it's extremely dangerous. Because you find, I mean, for example, these conspiracy theories, uh, um, when there are so many conspiracy theories about 9-11, you know, the most famous one is the one that says that uh, the Pentagon was never hit by the plane because there's a picture and you can see that there is nothing of the plane. Um, and I've spoken with many people during my uh, lectures around the world, uh, many people that believe it, say, well, you know, so the picture. And you say, well, look, you know, who put that picture? I mean, do you know if it's the real picture? I mean, uh, but unfortunately, uh, and I think part of this uh, is um, in favor of um, this so-called establishment that is not telling us the truth because the Internet is contributing to this confusion about what really happened, what is happening, and what will happen because there's so much confusion. So uh, overall, I would say that for the experts, it's very good, but for the non-experts, it's dangerous. Hi. I had a bit more of a general question. You've talked about the financial hole we seem to have dug ourselves into and how we're living beyond our means. How do you think if, I mean, do you see us getting out of it? Can China, for example, keep bankrolling excesses forever? Or what's going to happen? What do you think is going to happen? Uh, I think we're living uh, through a major shift uh, in uh, the balance of power. Uh, it's a bit like the uh, time of the Industrial Revolution. 
Now, before the Industrial Revolution, about 70% uh, of the world GDP was produced in China and in India. After the Industrial Revolution, of course, you know, it was uh, England because of the technological innovation, which shifted totally um, the epicenter of the world in terms of resources uh, to uh, to England. Um, I think the same thing is happening today. We're going through a major shift. So China in the next 10 years will become the largest economy in, in the world and will play an increasingly important role. Um, the issue is uh, will the Chinese be willing to uh, use their currency as the reserve currency of the world? Because sooner or later, that issue will, will have to be faced, and the Chinese are not interested in that at all. Although, as I told you before, being the reserve currency of the world is very advantageous because you can borrow against the total stock of your money in circulation in the world. The Chinese don't have that vision of the world that the Americans have. They're not interested in ruling the world. They're interested in protecting China. So I think the, the currency issue is one of the topics where we'll see most of the friction between uh, the West and China, but also between the international markets and China, because the international markets uh, are getting more and more nervous about the dollar. I mean, the dollar will continue to fall. It's inevitable. I mean, imagine, you know, uh, Bernanke yesterday um, at Jackson Hole said that it will do anything to sustain the American economy. So basically, it's going to print more money. I mean, the quantitative easing will carry on going. And the Fed, just a few months ago, had said that they wanted to stop the quantitative easing because it's extremely dangerous. I mean, the more money they print, the less the value of the dollar will be. Now, it's okay at the moment because, you know, the world is so scared and the economies uh, in, the, in the West are still not doing very well, that the market has not turned back on the dollar. But for sure, as soon as um, the recovery starts, and it will start eventually, uh, the U.S. will have to neutralize all those dollars in circulation, which means they have to destroy them. But I don't think they will do that, and I don't think anybody will believe that. So the inflationary element uh, uh, on the dollar will be um, will push the value down uh, so the market uh, doesn't like it because you know you still trade in dollars I mean most of the international trade is done in dollars so I think um, there will be more and more pressure for a new reserve currency and I don't think the Chinese will want their currency to be the reserve currency because of course they will have to convert their currency open up to the financial markets and they don't want to do that because it's too soon they don't want massive inflow imagine you know if tomorrow <laughs> the Vimbi becomes convertible and anybody can invest in China there'll be a massive massive inflow into China which of course you know, will push the currency up so I don't think that the Chinese will do so we'll see a sort of uh, currency war in, in, in the next few years.
thank you for that. That was really amazing. Um, just a question I have in regards to uh, state-sponsored terrorism. You briefly mentioned that, and um, I just have a question. It's a bit general, but in your research, what was the main motive and incentive for governments to sponsor terrorism within their own you know, boundaries? Within their own? Within their own boundaries. Ah, Ayman. Um, uh, well, during the Cold War, of course, the state sponsor of terrorism was related to uh, localize uh, the fight between the two superpowers. Um, so this is why it's called the Cold War. In reality, <clears throat> they never confronted each other, but the war was was on. Um, so the uh, the use of war by proxy was a way to exercise you know, the actual confrontation between the two superpowers. Um, but state sponsor terrorism goes on even today. I mean, you got Saudi Arabia, for example, that has been sponsoring Al-Qaeda before 9-11. Uh, you have um, the jihadist movement being bankrolled by people in the Gulf um, in key areas where Muslim are um, the minorities, for example, we're talking about the Balkans, uh, the Caucasus, uh, uh, West, uh, East Africa. Um, the Chinese are involved in that also. Uh, in Nepal, for example, with you know the Maoists, also in India, uh, Kashmir. Uh, we have you know India on one side and we have Pakistan on the other side. Um, it's just uh, a way to. Um, to fight a war, to fight a confrontation that you cannot possibly fight with a conventional war. Um, uh, I think I understand what is your question also, is that what's the point? I agree with you, there is no point. But in terms of propaganda, in terms of political propaganda, war by proxies uh, are very successful. So the, the, the Reagan administration used that contrast in order to project this image that the United States was the country that was supporting freedom fighters. And you can apply that model to the Kashmiri uh, conflict from you know, India and from Pakistan. Uh, so at the end of the day, I think this is a kind of manipulation, a political manipulation from you know, the, the leadership, which also shows that the leadership is weak, because in reality you should not be needing this kind of propaganda. I mean, if you were... You know, a stable government, uh, you would not be needing that kind of propaganda in order to maintain uh, uh, a support uh, from your electorate. Thank you. Uh, my question is in regards to, um, will the idea of uh, legalization of drugs will help to reduce how competitive the, the, the money used in the markets? Uh, or would just become a whole stay and um, sponsor activity and nothing will happen? No, absolutely. The legalization of drugs would grossly reduce this business. Absolutely. And if you talk to um, experts in this field, everybody would agree. I mean, even if you talk to the Commission on uh, um, Crime and Drugs, 
the UN Commission on uh, Crime and Drugs in uh, um, Afghanistan. In fact, you know, the head is an Italian, is uh, a diplomat, Cosa is his name. Um, they will tell you that the legalization is the only way forward. But the problem of legalization is, uh, um, uh, you know, is the moral issue. I mean, can you imagine um, uh, a European government that all of a sudden legalized drugs? So people will say, well, until yesterday, you told us that there was a terrible thing. So people were worried that, you know, 16-year-old kids, you know, can get cocaine and things like that, which, of course, is not the case because legalization has to happen within certain kinds of boundaries. It's, uh, it's very much like the use of alcohol. Um, and I think the best, the best example is, you know, prohibition. I mean, during prohibition, in reality, there was, you know, more consumption of, of you know, alcohol, I mean, in excess. So people were actually abusing the use of alcohol. They're actually after. Um, but now that, of course, there is no prohibition, the government also gets money because, you know, um, use of alcoholic beverages tax. So there's also that side, uh, that advantage. I think in the U.S., um, there is a movement at the moment towards legalization, at least of, of soft um, drugs. So we're talking about class B drugs, marijuana. Um, there is this legal marijuana in the States, which has just been introduced. And it's very interesting because I was, um, I was in Montana um, uh, in July, and all of a sudden, you drive through Montana and you see, you know, legal marijuana, come and buy your legal marijuana. So, and everybody has a legal marijuana license because basically you go to the doctor and you say, oh, I have a terrible backache. Okay, you know, I'll give it. So it's true. Every, everybody has it. Um, and it's interesting what is happening. Well, I'll tell you about Montana, but California is the same story. So there are most of the states now are have agreed to this legislation on legal marijuana. Um, but it's interesting because in, uh, in the case of the Northwest U.S., so Montana, Wyoming, all that part, uh, they, um, where um, until recently the marijuana was in the hands of the Mexican who would bring it from Mexico, um, all of a sudden uh, the legal <clears throat> marijuana wholesalers are not buying from the Mexican cartel, but they're buying from the local growers, because of course they've always been local growers in that region, right? Um, because the local growers have a better product and it costs less. So the, all of a sudden, the, the Mexican cartel has been cut out totally from the business. So uh, I think that the, it's very interesting what's happening in the U.S. And what they say is that um, for sure in California, they will legalize all drugs. Uh, um, and then you know, this is going to be the example that other states will look at. So we'll see. Professor, you mentioned in your early research about the Red Brigades and how much time was spent raising funds for their activities. The same was true with the IRA. How much time do you estimate Al-Qaeda spend having to raise money as opposed to carrying out acts or keeping out of the way of those looking for them? Um, well, well I, I think in the case of Al-Qaeda, the situation is uh, a bit different because, of course, uh, uh, being a transnational organization, um, 
run in a completely different way from the Red Brigade. So um, the money for, of Al-Qaeda came primarily from uh, the sponsor of Osama bin Laden. Um, Al-Qaeda was based in Afghanistan, and it was, I would say, it was more a sort of paramilitary kind of organization. So people uh, were prepared, uh, were trained um, in Afghanistan, uh, and then they were dispatched somewhere else in order to carry out the attack. Um, now, what I think is interesting is how these homegrown groups, uh, jihadist homegrown groups, uh, fund themselves. That's more similar to the model of the Red Brigades uh, or you know, the classical model, let's say, of the European terrorist organization. Um, if you look at um, the um, July 7 attack in London, for example, um, uh, it costs very, very little because the unit cost of terrorist activity has gone down tremendously. Um, now, the, three of the four um, terrorists lived at home with their parents. It's amazing. And they funded uh, their cell um, through little jobs. So it was totally legal business. One was married, uh, and he actually had a job. So the entire operation was funded with clean money. Um, so uh, the, the basically what has happened, I mean, I didn't tell you in the lecture because it would have been too long, but what actually has happened is that within that um, transnational model, so within the globalization of terrorists, after 9-11, we see a sort of privatization within the globalization. And that was made possible also by the fact that the politics of fear um, terrorizes so much that um, we don't need a spectacular attack anymore. I mean, we don't need Al-Qaeda, we don't need Osama bin Laden, you know, spending... Uh, I mean, 9-11 you know, took them more than 10 years to put it together. They had tried before. So, I mean, it was a massive, massive um, operation, super transnational operation. But uh, today, uh, it is sufficient that four kids uh, uh, get... Um, radicalized by watching TV, by watching what is happening in Iraq, you know, uh, hanging on with a few web um, page, with few uh, webmasters of, you know, jihadist web page, and, you know, they get together uh, with very little money, you know, they actually carried out an attack in the center of London. And the impact of that attack was unbelievable. I mean, unbelievable. So I think uh, this is the real problem that we have in Europe today. And luckily, luckily, um, these attacks uh, are very rare because these guys don't know what they're doing. These are not real terrorists. These are totally amateurs. I mean, if you look, I, I know that this sounds uh, a bit shocking, but this is the absolute truth. I mean, you read in the newspaper, oh, you know, um, the, somebody was trying to... Um, blow up a plane on uh, the Christmas, that was the Christmas bombing this year, and this guy was sitting in his seat and he couldn't uh, lit a match. Now, which terrorist would actually you know, use his seat in order to blow himself up? I mean, wouldn't you go to the bathroom and do it? 
I mean, wouldn't you? So if you look at the, if you look at the technicalities of all these attacks and why these guys get caught all the time, thank God, it's because they are incompetent. Because there is not an organization like Al-Qaeda, an organization like the Red Brigades, they actually train these people, mold these people, and make them into real soldiers. tiny nation like Australia, we are either a small player or a non-player on the global scene. And, like, I'm just wondering where do we stand within that because it might be a 19th century model, but legislation and policy is still very much made at the level of the nation-state, even if all of this stuff is transnational. And even though you may not know about the typical Australian situation, I'd like to hear your thoughts about your experience with Italy and Britain, where do those two nations sit within kind of global um, treaties and global responsibility, the kind of jurisdiction that one nation can have throughout the world and one nation's small economy within the global scene? Um, I mean, how much power and authority can one nation have and is there that kind of disjuncture between what's happening globally and, and how much authority and jurisdiction you can have as just one tiny nation state? Um, well, Australia is clearly involved in uh, the global economy. I mean, it's part of the global economy. Um, there is money laundering taking place here, uh, coming from Europe. Uh, some of it goes through the network uh, of the Ndrangheta, uh, which operates uh, across the world uh, through the diaspora of the Calabrian, uh, which is very, very large diaspora. We're talking about over 4 million people that are scattered around the world. Um, the Italian authorities uh, work on that. The <clears throat> anti-money laundering authorities in this country know about that. Uh, so uh, it is part of this system. Um, to answer your question about how do we go about, uh, I think you know this is a very intelligent question because, of course, uh, if all of this is globalized and is highly integrated, uh, it is logic to say that the only way to fight this is if we create a source of legislation which is uh, countering um, terrorist financing legislation and also um, an anti-money laundering legislation which is highly integrated within the nations. Uh, well, unfortunately, this is not uh, what has happened and this is not what is going to happen because you know, nobody wants to delegate uh, its power, its economic power, its financial power within its own boundaries to somebody else. You know, in 2005, I was the chairman of the country terrorist financing group at the Club de Madrid. This was the largest conference that ever took place on terrorists. People came from all over the world. We worked for six months. We produced, my group produced over 2,000 pages of documents. And the conclusion was that we needed an international organization that would supervise what is happening all over the world. Um, not an organization that was going to um, 
impose uh, decision, but simply supervise, monitor. So we said, you know, we have this organization, so we know what, um, what is happening in Austria and what is happening in the US in real time. We have all this data. So if something is going on, uh, people, of course, you know, we're talking about people that had the clearance to access this data. People can actually access this data. Now, it's not such a terrible thing. Do you think that anybody actually wanted to do that? I mean, the Club de Madrid put it in its agenda because, of course, the Club de Madrid thought it was a fantastic idea. This was uh, actually sabotaged primarily by the United States. Uh, I mean, we're talking about 2005. You know, we are at the height of the Bush administration. So the Americans, uh, I had in my group two Americans, uh, right, which I had to put them in my group because you know, said you got to have the Americans. Uh, the Americans did not even come to the meeting in Madrid for fears that the administration would retaliate against them because of our proposal. I mean, you know, this is serious politics. I mean, this is high-level politics. Uh, so the answer is no. It's not going to happen, and what's happening is that uh, we'll carry on seeing this uh, shadow economy growing. Terrorism is not such a big threat because I told you these guys are incompetent, but organized crime, my gosh, these guys are professional. So that is the real threat. Oh, okay, thanks. Um, I'm not an economist, so I can't really reply in your terms, but I found your talk really clear nonetheless. I was wondering, um, you've defined the, this privatised shadow economy, um, but also described the service that it provides to the general economy. Um, and I was sort of wondering, is, is there a potential role that the shadow economy can play in um, future economic con you know, conflict as a kind of set of unofficial bankers or, you know, like, is, is there some, some useful way to approach the culture and politics of the shadow economy? You mean what we can do uh, as or, citizen uh, in order to fight this? That's the question. I mean, if... If the shadow economy is playing playing a role within the economy anyway, you know, would it be more useful not to draw the line between the shadow economy and the official economy, but rather monitor monitor the flow of capital across all, all the groups and try and work with those groups in a more official cultural way? Uh, well, I mean... Maybe that doesn't make sense to you. No, no, no. I understand what you mean. If okay. the shadow economy is part of the economy, then you know why not uh, integrate some of it? Uh, um, well, I mean, you know, uh, there is this uh, idea at the moment uh, um, to negotiate with the Taliban. <laughs> so that's uh, it's a very good example. Um, um, Yes, I mean, I, I think, you know, what you're saying also can relate to um, when a terrorist in the end wins, he becomes a freedom fighter and eventually becomes a politician. 
That has happened before in history. And this is why we do not have a definition of terrorism. Because, of course, you know, I mean, Nelson Mandela was a terrorist until the day he became president of the new South Africa Republic. So, um, yes, I think you know, this is possible. But, of course, there is the ethical issue. If then we accept this as the normality then what is going to stop us from using violence to carry out our ideas? Now, that should not happen. Meaning, I mean, Nelson Mandela um, is a great hero by all means, but to me, he actually did uh, get involved with terrorist activity, and that's violence. That's the difference between my friend and I. See, I mean, you know, I was not going to fit the terrorist profile, uh, not only because I was single-minded and opinionated, but because I would never, ever have taken arms against anybody because I'm against that. Because I think, you know, the moment in which you use violence, you, are, you have already been defeated. There are many other ways. And, you know, if you're bright and you use your brain instead of using your muscles, you will find a way. So my, from my point of view, uh, violence uh, is always negative. So my answer would be not, because then we go back to a sort of Hobbesian kind of world where everybody's against everybody else and we lose the social contract, we, we lose our humanity, we lose what we are, which is a society. So I would say, no, I would do without that, even if that means to go into recession for the next 10 years. Better to be poor yeah, than to be a terrorist, for sure. Well, Dr. Napoleone, I think we have two reasons to be grateful that you didn't ever join the Brigate Rosse. Um, the, the first is that we would have been robbed of that very, um, that very same acuity of mind, that extraordinary perception, that capacity for analysis um, that they rejected and that mm -hmm. has provided us such interesting insights tonight. The second reason I think we have to be thankful is that I'm just glad you're on our side, or all those terrorists might think of blowing themselves up in the toilet and not in their seat. So um, better to have you as an advisor for us than as an advisor for them. Um, Professor Napoleoni will be um, signing copies of her book um, in the lobby, and please um, do join her there to both purchase copies of her book and to answer, ask her any other questions that you may um, have, though remember that she needs to be fed at some point this evening, so give her a chance to, to get away. Um, please do join us also for future Sydney Ideas lectures. Um, two that you may be interested in, on the 1st of September, we're having Amin Rihani, who is an Arab-American humanist intellectual, um, and she will be addressing um, us... Uh, 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 no, she will not be addressing... She is the topic, I'm really sorry, of, <laughs> of a lecture that will be here. Um, the second is there's one on Buddhism in a Sustainable World um, that will be on the 13th of September. Details of those are in the little events booklet. But thank you very much for joining us, and thank you again. For thank you.